loved it. I send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers, where we're talking about horror films and gay films and gay horror films. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. <laughs> I was I feel gonna like say I always I was... flummox you with it. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's okay. I just never know when you're gonna stop. Uh, listeners, this is a problem when you're recording with someone that you can't see. You can't read their body language. So I just interrupt Joe a lot, which you may notice when you listen to episodes. I feel like we interrupt each other equally. But you know what? I think we do a pretty good job. I think we have a good banter, but you also sometimes can't tell because of the editing, because we're so perfect at it. That's true. We're really <laughs> quite amazing. Yes, we are. So, Joe, mm-hmm. what are we talking about today? We are talking about Antonia Bird's 1999 film Ravenous, which is important to note that we're not talking about the 2017 film Ravenous, which I feel like we should have clarified at the end of the last episode. Well, okay, so here's the thing. So Ravenous, whenever I was researching this film, yes, the is 2017, right? I think so. I'll double check. Whatever. So that was a fantastic fest, the year that it premiered there. And it was called Les Affames. I actually called it Les Affames or Les Affames because I thought that's how it was pronounced. But I think it's French. It is. It's French Canadian from Quebec, aka the province right next to me. Is it Les Affames then? Is that how you say it? Les Affames. Oh, fuck yeah. So, yeah, that's what it was called. So when it was coming out as Ravenous, they changed the title for American audiences, um, in which that one's on Netflix. I didn't know what it was but then i realized oh that's that's that lay a fames movie that I, I i heard about at fantastic fest i didn't see it but i heard it was really good but that's a zombie movie and this ravenous which is as you said the 1999 antonia bird movie is a cannibal movie which mm-hmm. important to note also neither one of us oh wait no you had seen this before i had i saw it in theaters back in the 1999 baby so you were like 20 then <laughs> i was not 20 trace <laughs> Still in high school, you motherfucker. <laughs> so you were almost 20, though, really. Mm, no, yeah. but sure. <laughs> anyway, so, okay, I had never seen this movie before. And I got to admit, when I put my Blu-ray in, because, listeners, I don't believe in piracy, and I bought the Blu-ray. Such a good boy. I know. The music that plays in the title screen is not at all what I thought was going to be the score. <laughs> for this movie and it is the most bizarre score i have ever heard in my entire life that probably could be the subtitle for this episode which is not quite what you were expecting it to be it's really not and also um i'm gonna get this out of the way at the forefront at the front the forefront the foreskin ew (laughs) if you think there's not a queer element in this movie there is and I promise you. Oh, my you, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, because okay, when I was reading about it, because someone said, oh, you should cover Ravenous. It's turning 20. Oh, moo, 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 moo. And I was like, oh, yeah, but it's like a cannibal movie. And it's like Western. Bleh. It's like not things I'm particularly interested in. I don't care for Westerns. It's not a blanket statement. I've seen Westerns that I like. It's just not a genre that I immediately gravitate towards. And same with cannibal films. I like some, but I don't gravitate towards the genre because I find them particularly icky. Fair. But... This movie is super gay. (laughs) Which immediately makes it all the better in your books, right? Well, it makes it better for us to cover. 
on a first time viewing, I don't think I loved it as much because when I posted that I was watching this, I had so many responses from people saying, oh my God, it's one of my favorite movies ever. It's so good, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this movie made fucking $2 million in 1999. Who saw this movie? But everyone loves it. It's a cult film though. Like people love it. I liked it. I didn't love it because I think I was so, not taken aback, but I was caught off guard by Mm -hmm. the tone of this movie, which is very bizarre. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember when I saw this in theaters and again, not to belabor the point, but the marketing for this film treated the film as though it was a very straightforward cannibal film. So Mm -hmm. you go in thinking it's going to be doom and gloom, people munching on each other. And then that music kicks in right off the bat. And you're just like, wait, what the fuck is this? And it's really curious to see how the categorization of the film has evolved over time where people are now like, oh, it's a satire. So it's not just a Western or it's not just a horror film. It's, you know, got these really highly comedic elements in it. I think it's a very polarizing film for all of those reasons. But particularly on a first time watch where you don't know what you're expecting. I walked out of this movie being like that movie did not get its shit together. That felt like two different films. I don't really know what they were going for. And it's only over time and after a couple of rewatches that I've been like, oh, okay. Yeah, this film has a better handle on itself than you might think. But it takes multiple watches to kind of get accustomed to that. Wait, so you've seen it more than twice? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah, this is probably my maybe my fourth time watching it. In what scenario would you be watching this movie again if you didn't like it the first time? I'm sorry, that's a really stupid question, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that I didn't like the first time. I was like, I don't know that I got it, or I don't know that that film was entirely successful at what it was trying to do. But then when it came out on DVD, I bought it because, you know, movies, cheap. You can get them second, well, you could get them secondhand back in the day when video rental places were still around. And I checked it out again, and I was like, oh, you know what? I think I'm liking this a little bit more. And then I think I watched it randomly a couple years ago, and now for this. So would you say you liked it the most this time, or were you kind of like on the same level of like as you were the last time you saw it? I don't know that I love the film. Like, I wouldn't call it a favorite, personally. Yeah. But I respect the film, and I think it's doing a lot of really interesting things. Like, it's highly watchable. I don't know that it's highly rewatchable. I agree with that. I also want to point out before we get into the nitty-gritty, we are covering this film because it is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Yesterday, actually. Because it opened on March 19th, 1999. And... I believe I've seen at least three other podcasts covering it, so we may be late to the party. But you know what? We're timely because we're releasing it 20 years and a day later, so haha. Mm-hmm. And also to clarify, we have not listened to those other podcasts, so if we're repeating what they've said, no. it's not plagiarism, it's just that everybody's doing it. I did read the summary for Faculty of Horrors episode, though, and there's no mention of queer readings. So I think we're safe on that front. But, you know, the other two, I don't know. Yeah, they'll likely approach it from a historical feminist perspective. At least that's what I would imagine, since that's very much their wheelhouse and where they excel. So I'm hoping that, yeah, we'll corner the queer market. So, (laughs) okay. So let's go over some details about the film itself before we go into the film itself so (laughs) so a couple weeks ago we we recorded an episode on carrie 2 which as you may remember had some troubled production issues and a woman a female director was brought in to replace a male director two weeks into production the same thing happened on this movie (laughs) 1999 baby it was a great year for female directors 
so I didn't know that when I watched it, but when I read it afterwards, I was like, what the fuck? What is going on with Hollywood and horror movies at the time? Yeah, so we're talking about Ravenous, which was released on March 19th, 1999 by 20th Century Fox. Uh, important distinction to note, though, is that it's their Fox 2000 sub-brand or whatever. Um, which I don't think exists anymore, does it? I don't think it does. But this was one of, I want to say I read 10 films that Fox 2000 released in the year 1999. So they didn't know what the fuck they were doing, and this was one of the ten films that got the shaft. It did get the shaft. Actually, I didn't watch the trailer for this movie, so I probably should have in preparation for this. But I, yeah, like you said, I imagine it was marketed like a straightforward cannibal movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is made for a budget of $12 million. And, haha, opening weekend. <laughs> really? Haha. Well, I'm saying haha because it's like they were stupid. It, it opened in number 18, the 18th spot, with $1 million. Yeah. Has a mainstream film gotten a wide release with $1 million opening in number 18 since this movie happened? I mean, maybe, but I'm going to say no. It's pretty rare for a mainstream film to open outside of the top 10 with such a low gross. I mean, when we talked about Carrie, we talked about it opening in the second spot with like seven million dollars yeah. so it's important to bear in mind that box office grosses were not what they are now but right yeah, like when you open outside of the top 10 something has gone disastrously wrong and then it ended up making just double that two million dollars which if you adjust for today is 3.67 million which is still <laughs> not a it's lot not of good. money no and i'm just surprised that a studio gave a movie that was a horror comedy satire weird western $12 million mm-hmm. in 1999 money, which is probably, again, like $24 million today. Yeah. I have to think that it was something to do with the talent, maybe? This film has good people, although, again, I don't know how famous they were at the time. Well, none of them were, but we'll get into it. So, reviews at the time were fine for what this movie is. It was uh, Rotten Tomatoes, you get an average of 45% with critics and a Metacritic score of 46. So, that evens out. But, and I, this must be a new current thing, audience score in Rotten Tomatoes is 78%, and Metacritic user score is 7.3 out of 10. Hmm. That's pretty darn good compared to a lot of the films that we've covered. It is, but I'm really surprised that audiences have latched onto this movie. I don't understand it. Horror comedies are the hardest sell, and I, I don't know if I would go as far to call this a horror comedy. There are comedic elements to it. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not talking about, like, fucking Drive Me to Hell or no. Slither here. No. There aren't a lot of jokes. There's, like, a couple of amusing parts. Mostly from Robert Carlyle. You betcha. So, it was kind of dismissed on its release. Obviously, no one went to go see it. The reviews were leaning negative. But recently, it's, it's acquired a cult following. So, director's Antonia Bird. The only thing I could find of her was a film called Mad Love, which is a Drew Barrymore movie with Chris O'Donnell. Yeah, that's not a great one. She does actually have a well-known in the UK film with Tom Wilkinson and Linus Roach from a couple of different things, but people in the US may know him from one of the Law and Orders. But it was actually about a gay priest scandal, so I kind of thought that was interesting for our purposes. You need to start a Law and Order podcast, because this is the second time that you've mentioned Law and Order, and I'm just like, oh my god, I'll fucking watch Law and Order. (laughs) Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll bring up the Law and Order side, and you can bring up the Parenthood side. Yes, okay, done. I'll start a Parenthood (laughs) podcast, you'll start a Law and Order podcast, and we'll cross paths. We'll have a crossover episode. Sounds good. 
<laughs> I'm not going to go into technical stuff, but listeners, if you remember from last week, the cinematographer on Cherry Falls was Anthony B. Richmond, and he also is a cinematographer on this movie, which is kind of funny considering both movies had production troubles. We really do discuss a lot of movies with production troubles. True, but we're also covering a number of films from the exact same time period, aka 1999, What the Fuck Up With You. Yeah, if you're a filmmaker and you get a time machine, don't travel to 1999, because it sounds like a terrible time <laughs> to be in the film industry. Cast is a bunch of familiar faces. So you've got Guy Pierce as Boyd. you got Robert Carlyle as, I want to say they keep calling him Calhoun. Yeah, but there's a Q in there that is so confusing when you write it out. It looks like Cocoon. Mm-hmm. Like Cocoon with an L. Everyone and their dog is saying Calhoun, though. Yeah, I'm going to say Calhoun. That's what I'm sticking with. Jeremy Davies, whom people may not know, but if you ever watched Lost, he was in Lost. And I've never seen Justified, but he was in Justified as well. I think I've said before that Justified is quite good. But you have. Yeah, it was hilarious. I spent half the movie being like, who the fuck is that? Why does that guy look so familiar? Uh... Did you watch Lost? Yes, I did. Okay, good. So you knew that too. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Justified is on my list. So when Justified was on, it was like that and Damages were the two big FX shows. <sighs> oh my God, and both those shows are amazing. Dude, Damages is one of my favorite shows of all time. Of course, because it's about like lady bitches getting yes! shit done. <laughs> And, you know, even though Glenn Close didn't win the Oscar this year, she did win like a thousand Emmys for damages. So and rightfully so. Rightfully so. Listeners, if you like The Devil Wears Prada and you thought, hmm, I wish this was a legal drama and I wish Glenn Close was playing Miranda Priestly instead of Meryl Streep. And people were getting murdered and it was being told in reverse. And Anne Hathaway was played by Rose Byrne instead. Then. Uh, yes. <laughs> then you should go watch Damages because it is amazing. The first season is the best season, so unfortunately it does not match the quality after that. But you want to talk some fucking amazing guest stars, you go Mm. watch Damages. Yes, that's like where Ted Danson's career renaissance was. Uh, (laughs) Martin Short is a villain in season three. Fucking Timothy Oliphant is there in season two. You got William Hurt. You've got Ryan Phillippe. You've got Janet Elfman. You've got John Goodman as a villain. Like, Oh, it is. Yeah. Sorry, that was a digression. But <laughs> this is our damages podcast. Hello, it's so and welcome. good. <laughs> I would do a damages like episode rehab podcast because it's so fucking good. People, if you want it, let us know. Yes. So Jeremy Davies was in Justified and Lost. <laughs> <laughs> You've also got David Arquette in a very minor role, which I was a little shocked by. You're skipping over people. Well, no, I- I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. Okay. I was just going to... just David Arquette. I'm like, really? We're we're going to go to him next? Because well, he's in I, this for a hot second. I wanted to end it with the controversial cast member. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. I apologize. You Continue. get... No, no, no. It's okay. We didn't discuss this ahead of time, so I get it. But yeah, so David Arquette is in this. So this is between Scream 2 and 3. So this is that era, David Arquette. And then you've got mm-hmm. Neil McDonough, who I only know from Desperate Housewives and Arrow, but he's also in Justified. <laughs> he is. Yep. And he's great in that, too. That's great. He's shirtless a lot in this movie, and he is looking great. I believe you said something about looking swole on no, Twitter. because I learned the word thick today, but like not thick, T-H-I-C-K, but T-H-I-C-C, which I thought was kind of an insult, but apparently it's like a compliment? I don't know. Kids, what are the kids doing? Listeners, please tweet us and tell me, because ex- <laughs> someone called me thick, and I thought they were calling me like fat sexy, but apparently it's just sexy. So we're going to go with that. Wow, that was the most desperate searching for compliments I have ever heard in my life. I'm not searching for a compliment. I'm asking for (laughs) clarification because I want to know if I'm fat, sexy, or if I'm just sexy. 
<laughs> anyway, and then our last cast member is bum 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 Jeffrey Jones. Uh, drum roll. Jeffrey Jones is a very recognizable face. Um, most people probably know him from Beetlejuice or Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Also, Amadeus, Sleepy Hollow, Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, a lot of Tim Burton things, basically. Yeah. But he is also a known sexual predator mm-hmm. for being busted for owning a lot of child pornography. So it made watching this movie a little... Because this, this movie was very... It was the same year as Sleepy Hollow. And it, honestly, I think he, he was caught in the early 2000s for, with that porn. Yeah, it wouldn't have been much after this. Yeah. So that's kind of the base of this movie. Now... I have a long bit of a section, but I wanted to explain the production troubles before we start talking. So, everyone, like I said, this movie has production troubles. I tried to edit it down, but honestly, it's all kind of really fascinating and important. So here we go. Yeah, it's juicy. The film was shot on location in the Tatra Mountains, Slovakia, and in Durango, Mexico. One week before production, original director Milcho Manchevsky. It might be Milko. I could be wrong. But well done on the last name. Thank you. Was said to have submitted new storyboards, which would have required additional two weeks of shooting. The production company, Fox 2000, eventually agreed to an additional week, with complaints that Manchevsky had refused production meetings with the producers. Meanwhile, Manchevsky complained Fox 2000 executive Laura Ziskin micromanaged the production by vetoing his chosen technicians and casting against his wishes. Okay. Shooting was laid on the first day as Manchevsky and the production were still negotiating over the production budget and shooting schedule. As filming commenced, Manchevsky says Ziskin, that executive, sent him notes on the rushes every day, and that's in quotes, complaining about the amount of dirt on the costumes and the number of close-ups. Screenwriter Ted Griffin was at hand for constant rewrites, that's in quotes. So, here's where it gets juicy. I mean, that's already a pretty auspicious start. It really is. And it's kind of like, are we children here making this movie? Also, you're making a Western. It's going to be dirt on costumes, but I digress. Mm. After three weeks of shooting, Ziskin arrived to the set with director Raja Gosnell, which, y'all, Raja Gosnell is the director of both Scooby-Doo movies and Never Been Kissed. Now, I think he was brought on because of David Arquette, because I think Never Been Kissed was also 1999. So... Mm -hmm. I think David Arquette said, oh, my buddy Raja can come in and direct this movie. <laughs> Shit. So, Executive Ziskin arrives with Raja Gosnell in tow to dismiss Manchevsky and place Gosnell in as a replacement. While Manchevsky left the production, the cast had been said to have rejected Gosnell. They were like, fuck this. And maybe they hated David Arquette. I don't know. So they were like, we're not going to go with your director. Or maybe they were like, uh, this is an adult Western, and you brought in a guy who's directed romantic comedies and children's movies. Fuck Your Mother, Never Been Kissed is a fantastic <laughs> movie. Oh, no, I will go to bat for Never Been Kissed. I'm talking about you and your insatiable love for the Scooby-Doo movies. Those movies are good, and the second one is a classic. I don't even care. <laughs> Continue. Anyway, you're wrong. Uh, so anyway, so the cast <laughs> the cast rejected Gosnell, and Robert Carlyle then recommended Antonia Bird, his frequent collaborator and business partner. So following 10 days of negotiations, Bird arrived in Prague to helm the production. She, too, would criticize the circumstances under which the filming was to take place, describing the allocated studio space as horrible, in quotes, and the scheduling of the shoot manipulative, in quotes. She also went on to say that her predecessor, Manchevsky, should not be blamed for the problematic production. Bird has a commentary on the Blu-ray, which I did not watch. There's also a commentary with just Jeffrey Jones, which I'm... 
<laughs> a <Definitely> little <laughs> not watching. <laughs> I'm not watching, but I'm really curious. Anyway, so Bird suggests that the final theatrical cut had elements introduced without her approval, as she expressed disdain over the voiceover narration and was interested in recutting the film for the European market. And that's the end of my story. Okay, so I'm trying to remember about the voiceover narration. Is that the part where Guy Pierce's character is recounting the story of what happened? I'm not going to lie. I don't know. Because when I... <laughs> I don't I remember. Like, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't either. Voiceover narration. <laughs> Unless this is one of those things where... They changed it for the Blu-ray? Yeah. Like, I mean, stranger things have happened. I mean, there was a story that came out about how Netflix added a completely different ending to a movie in the UK and never told anyone. So shit like this happens. And unfortunately, Antonia Bird is dead. She died... I will... Fuck. She died in 2013? Yes. I was going to say 2003, but I was like, no, that's not right. So we can't ask her. And it, may, it does make me want to go watch her commentary a little bit more. Because based on these quotes, it doesn't seem like she gives a fuck. Mm. <laughs> so I'm mighty curious. Well, I got the impression looking over her filmography that it was like right in this time period that she was trying to make a big effort to do stuff in the States, like to become a Hollywood director. So I think it's this and Mad Love, and then that didn't work. And then she went back and started the film collective back in the UK. And she seemed much happier then. It said that she was a frequent collaborator and business partner with Robert Carlyle. And I didn't do any research on that, but I'm interested to see what that relationship was. I'm sure it's like British TV because that seems to be where she came from a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of TV movies. I think they had about three or four. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, good for Robert Carlyle. Also, a woman director on a fucking Western cannibal comedy. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, I think this movie is both A, well-directed, and B, turned out pretty good. Well, that's the thing. I mean, even going back to Carrie 2, for what both of those women had to deal with coming into it, and it, granted, it sounds like Antonia Bird had a harder time directing this film than Kat Shea had directed Carrie 2. But yeah, I mean, both of these films turned out miraculously well for what they had to endure. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the weird experiences. Like we said, this is the fourth film that we've covered on the podcast that's been directed by a woman. Mm -hmm. Two of them were micro budget films that turned out really well because the women essentially retained full creative control and didn't go the Hollywood studio system. Right. And then the two that are part of the studio system were brought in at the last minute. They had all sorts of fighting over budget and directorial control. And I mean, all the films turned out well, but it sounds like the studio system is not favorable to women directors, or at least it was not in this turn of the century. Well, period. but that's the thing, though. So yeah, the, the, the trouble productions were 1999. And then the films that we've covered that were like a micro budget, those are like in the last four or five years. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, granted, we, we are getting more female directors. I mean, well, actually, they're more Give foreign. Give me that Nia DaCosta Candyman action. Oh, my God. I can't wait. What? Nia DaCosta doing Candyman. And I can't I thought Jordan. Oh, Jordan no. was producing it. Yeah, because you would never fucking know because every time it gets referenced online, it's, it's Jordan, Jordan Peele's Candyman. Peele's Candyman. And I'm like, no, fuckers. It's Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Fuck. He's fucking producing. He's the money. He's the one who gets a green lit. She's the one putting in all the fucking hard work and she's getting no credit. Sorry, I'm no, really no, no. bad at it. I'm so disappointed in myself, though, because it makes it's like whenever <laughs> whenever people are like, oh, yeah, Wes Craven directed Wishmaster. I'm like, no, he fucking produced it. It says Wes Craven presents, idiot. Yeah. So I get it. I mean, it happens a lot when, and I love the fact that Jordan Peele is now so successful that he's getting all these other dormant projects off the ground. But 
yeah, it's important to notice when people are presenting or producing because that doesn't mean that they're doing that day-to-day work. It means that they're helpful in getting it. Here's hoping that Jordan Peele is picking better movies to produce than Wes Craven was. (laughs) Because Wes Craven did not produce a lot of good movies. (laughs) I feel like Wes Craven was participating in the John Carpenter, I don't give a fuck, I'm at the end of my career school. Oh, for sure. Producing. For sure. Like, give me that paycheck. I need a new golden toilet. I mean, yeah, yeah. Wes Craven presents Wishmaster, Wes Craven's They. Wes Craven's oh Dracula 2000. Um, <laughs> oh my god, we should do Dracula 2000 one day. Uh, so honestly, I feel like we could cover any vampire movie because you can argue queerness in any vampire movie. All I remember from that movie, though, is Jennifer Esposito talking about seeing the outline of a guy's cock through a window. <laughs> That's it. That's all I remember. That's one wood. So what's Ravenous about, Joe? <laughs> oh, right. We're still doing this. Okay, bear with me. I tried to condense this down, but it ended up being a little bit long. There's a lot of characters, honestly. Yeah, and yeah, so I tried to keep them uh, contained. Yeah. Okay, so the film opens with John Boyd, Guy Pierce, being promoted to U.S. Army captain for acts of heroism during the Mexican-American War in 1847. The reality is that Boyd was a coward who pretended to be dead before capturing the enemy command. And he's haunted by the incident, in particular the fact that he consumed the blood of his superior while he was playing dead. Boyd is reassigned by his commanding officer, General Slauson, played by John Spencer of the West Wing, to the remote outpost of Fort Spencer in the Sierra Nevadas, which operates on a skeleton crew during the off-season. There are five army personnel, led by Colonel Hart, Jeffrey Jones, drunk Major Knox, played by Stephen Spinella... Hypermasculine Private Reich, who is Neil McDonough, Religious Private Toffler, who is Jeremy Davies, Pothead Cook Cleves, David Arquette, and then there's two indigenous siblings, George and Martha, and they are deemed as coming with the fort. Shortly after Boyd's arrival, a dying man, Calhoun, Robert Carlyle, stumbles into camp. After they nurse him back to health, Calhoun recounts a story which involves his party becoming trapped and turning cannibalistic. Calhoun suggests he barely escaped from Captain Ives, the man in charge, and that he left only Miss McCready alone with him. Before they set out on a rescue party to see if they can recover Miss McCready from this Captain Ives, George recounts the tale of the Wendigo, which is a indigenous belief about a cannibal who becomes stronger by consuming the flesh of other men. So they trek off through the woods to get to the cave, only to discover that the whole thing was a motherfucking trap. And Calhoun (laughs) basically kills everyone except for Boyd, who jumps off a cliff and survives by eating Reich's body. Boyd eventually manages to return to Fort Spencer, only to discover that General Slauson, his lackey, Lindis, and Calhoun, who is now posing as Ives, have arrived to bring him up on charges. Calhoun and a revived Colonel Hart kill Cleves, Knox, and Lindis, and Boyd eventually reasons with Hart, slits his throat, and then battles Calhoun. They end up pinned together in a giant bear trap, and as they die, Martha runs away, and General Slauson has a little sip of that cannibal soup. And that's ravenous. That, all right, there's so much in this movie. So we're not going to go plot by plot, because you just explained everything. But <laughs> you're like, I fell asleep and I came back and you were well, still talking. I actually finished my glass of wine. So now I'm three glasses of wine into this night uh, or this podcast, I guess you can say. So it's going to be good. So this movie, mm-hmm. 
I mean, where where do you want to start? <laughs> There's so much shit in this movie. Um, I think the thing that I noticed the most on this rewatch is that I had never paid attention to the fact that Boyd is, I'm going to say it, essentially already becoming a Wendigo before he even gets to Fort Spencer. Well, no, he is because don't you remember when he's, okay, so when they cut back to him playing dead, blood is dripping in his mouth from one of his comrades. Yes, bitch. That's what I'm saying. I didn't realize it until this rewatch. Did you say that in your summary? Yes. Oh, sorry. I was probably drinking wine <laughs> when you said that. No, you're absolutely right, though. I'm going to say it, and we can dive into it later, but everyone, the cannibalism is a metaphor for homosexuality. Mm-hmm. That is where we are coming from with this entire episode. So yes. every time we say cannibalism, just pretend like we're saying gay. Yeah, for sure. And that, to me, is one of the reasons why I think the film is so interesting is because on the surface level, you can look at it as this disgraced man. He's basically exiled and then he discovers himself and he finds the courage to fight back and save humanity from mm-hmm. this cannibalistic cabal. Or you can look at it as a queer man who, under strange circumstances, comes to realize that he is being courted by another man who wants him to join his cannibal sex cult. And they end up having some metaphorical, symbolic gay sex and then die. Uh, Yeah, oh god, the entire last 60 seconds of this movie... (laughs) (laughs) it's so gay this is like scream from 1999 it's It's insane i'm just gonna poke you with sharp objects all the time well and the the line of dialogue that struck my attention it's uh calhoun and boyd and they're talking to each other and calhoun's like ah you've tasted it felt its power yet you're resisting why because Mm. it's wrong ah morality again we're talking about men consuming men men eating men men eating butts because yeah, remember that there's only one female in this entire film. She has about two lines of dialogue, and she's absent 95% of the time. And she's arguably the smartest person in this movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a traditional thing with indigenous characters on film. They're either portrayed as drunk or they are getting high, which does happen a little bit in this film with the character of George. Or they're people who are dispensing knowledge and wisdom. And in this case, I just love the fact that Martha's like, bad shit going down. I'm getting the fuck out of here. My favorite line, actually. So were you raised very religiously? No. Okay. So I was raised very Catholic. I had to go through the motions. I did, you know, communion. I did reconciliation, which is forgiveness. I went through confirmation, even though I didn't want to. Mom, if you're listening to this, I'm very sorry. <laughs> and I still go to church for Christmas Eve for my, with my parents. But I was raised religiously, not crazy religious, but like I have a Catholic background. And since uh, college, I guess, I would say I'm agnostic. I believe in a higher power, and I just don't think it's the God that most Christians believe in. Because I obviously have a bone to pick with the Bible. But not my story. So there's the line where he says, oh, because they're talking about cannibalism. And I want to say it's George basically says, well, you Christians are cannibals. You consume Jesus every Sunday. And I loved that. It was Mm -hmm. such a good fuck you. Even obviously we're not really eating Jesus Christ. It's like a we, they, Uh, it's, it's a metaphor, but I just thought that was a great way of like an indigenous person who, by the way, dies like immediately. (laughs) (laughs) once the big scene happens to throw back Western civilizations like morality and morals in their face. 
Well, I mean, there's a whole readings about this film about cultural imperialism and American expansionism about this outpost is on the edge of civilization. The reason it's there is to help people through the pass. So people who are coming for the gold rush and expanding West. So there's all that kind of stuff happening because, of course, it's a Western. So there's a frontier narrative going on. Mm -hmm. But that to me is like, yeah, that's the kind of more obvious stuff. I'm more interested in this idea. It's a camp filled with only men who are all misfits and fuck ups in their various regards. Um, I'm going to introduce now a piece, which mm -hmm. is thankfully open access, unlike so many other things I've referenced. <laughs> it's 25 pages, so it's probably just an academic article. You're going to read 25 pages? Yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know you're not. refill your glass. <laughs> <laughs> I was I'm going to go walk outside for a minute. I'll yeah, right go back. walk the dogs. Come back. I'll still be talking. Yeah. No, it's called Eating to Live, Living to Eat, Cannibalism, and Sexual Appetite in Ravenous. And it's by Chris Ryan. So if you search out that title, you can read the whole article. But Mr. Ryan is fully on board with our reading. And he casts all of these characters as queer or queer adjacent. And he breaks down their various vices, like the covering of religiosity and the effeminate singing of Koffler, the hyper-masculinity, like proving himself that he can bathe in the water uh, of Reich when he's introduced. So Neil McDonald always being shirtless. Oh my god, his introduction. So I've never found Neil McDonough attractive because I feel like he looks like a huge tool, but... It's like some weird albino stuff going on, maybe. I don't mind the albino stuff, to be honest. He just His face looks douchey. But man, in this movie... Well, actually, I'm sorry. He Because oh, he, he's always a bad guy. He's never a protagonist or a nice person in anything I've ever seen him in. Maybe in Justified, he is? No, he's the villain. Oh, great. So yeah, he's always the villain. <laughs> in Desperate Housewives, he was married to Edie just so he can get back and murder Mike and Susan. And in Arrow, he's like Damien Dark. So when they show him in the river shirtless i was like oh my that oh my mm -hmm. that's it i just have to say that yeah um this idea that he's displaying all the traditional masculine tropes he's very confrontational he's very assertive but he's also hanging out shirtless a lot and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. ryan also suggests that Knox. Maybe he's using his drinking as a cover-up for some things that he may be feeling. And then, of course, you've got Boyd and Calhoun, who are essentially engaging in this dance of Calhoun saying, hey, why don't you come over to the butt play side? And Boyd being like, no, I don't know. Maybe just a taste. Mm -hmm. are, are you concluded? I'm done. Yeah. Okay. So I found a couple of different sources on homosexuality for this movie. And none of them were super academic. <laughs> a lot of them were just random people's blogs. But I found one concise summary for this movie that I actually really, really enjoyed. And this is from Robert Grimink, who writes for Listverse. Uh, this is back in 2014. Here we go. So he says, Ravenous is about two men who have urges that are condemned by society. The taboo act, which involves physically taking another man inside of them, is something both men struggle with. By the end, one wants to be out and live free, but the other wants to conquer his urges. And that is Ravenous in a nutshell. Yes. Are you done? Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I just really liked that quote. I thought, oh, that's a smart person. It's very succinct. Yes. 
I mean, at the end of the day, it's interesting to me because I've seen a number of people dissect this film and say, well, yes, it's obviously a cannibal film, but it's also kind of a vampire film because Robert Carlyle is constantly licking people and like slurping up their blood. And I'm like, no, that's a cannibal. He's not sucking people dry. The reason that people confuse this with a vampire film is because they're picking up on those homoerotic tendencies where Robert Carlyle is playing that temptress figure who's trying to recruit people into something like a vampiric troupe. He's like, hey, isn't life better if you come over here? You can have more strength. You'll live forever. We'll have more fun. (laughs) The Wendigo aspect is something that I was not expecting from this movie. I legit thought it was just, okay, like an alive type movie, you know, where it's, oh, Frontiersmen, which, oh man, there is no quicker way to make me not want to go see your movie than to say Frontier. That <laughs> that word <laughs> is so dull to me. Anyway, so I didn't know that was a thing in this movie that there was a Wendigo aspect because my only exposure to Wendigo lore is from an episode of Charmed. From I thought you were going to say two. Supernatural. <laughs> no, no. Oh my god. If My sister is not listening to this, but if she ever did, she has tried to get me to watch Supernatural for, what, the 14 years it's been on? Yeah, about that at this point. Yeah, anyway. But no, there's an episode of Charmed, and I think it's season one, where Piper gets scratched by a Wendigo, but it's more of a werewolf type thing than it is like a true, whatever this movie posits a Wendigo is. But I loved, Mm -hmm. I loved that they brought in this supernatural aspect of consuming a man makes you stronger. Consuming a man heals you. Because really, in a way, then, it's kind of a pro-gay stance. Yeah, I mean, like Calhoun's using it for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. I think part of this is playing on this idea that it can be a danger. And if you read it as homosexual coding, it's like that idea that when you first come out, you kind of go wild with power and you're sort of like, all right, I'm going to dress everything in pride flags and I'm going to have the bracelet and like the patch on my backpack and I'm going to be super loud and out and queer and I'm going to sleep with as many people as I possibly can. So go girl. This movie is kind of like the early coming out sleeping around phase where Robert Carlyle is like, wouldn't it just be great if we could just eat everybody? He's constantly just looking for Well, at one point, he literally says, there's lunch, there's dinner. (laughs) His whole plan is to take over the settlement and make a place for cannibals where they can just consume passersby that walk by them. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Because people have to go by because it's a pass. (laughs) So it's literally like just some gay dude staking out a camp on like the corner of downtown and just saying, all right, everyone that comes by, I'm going to butt fuck them and make them gay. (gasps) Oh, my God. It's like a cannibal B&B. Well, I guess not make them gay because he's killing them. So it's like I'm going to rape them. It's more a rape story, really, when you think about it. Rape and murder. I'm sorry. So you're still now suggesting it's a positive depiction? I'm not saying it's a (laughs) (laughs) positive. There are many different ways that you can view the actions of all the, mainly Calhoun in this movie. But he's clearly the villain of the piece. So then you have to walk into, okay, so is the movie viewing homosexuality... Because the movie clearly views cannibalism as bad, which rightfully so. But if you stick that homosexual metaphor on it, then then what are you saying? I mean, I think like a lot of texts that we've looked at, you can look at it in various ways because you've got different characters who are struggling or grappling with it. So if you look at it the way that Calhoun is presenting it, he's a power hungry figure and he's looking to recruit as many new people as possible. 
But if you look at it from Boyd's perspective, he's struggling with it. He's unwilling to accept it, despite the fact that he is clearly in the same boat. Like, he's already a Wendigo by definition Mm -hmm. the minute that he consumes his superior's blood in that opening scene. I actually loved the reveal. So they very slowly reveal Boyd's history in the first act of this movie because the film opens with him being commended for being a war hero and all this stuff. He took over a Mexican settlement because it takes place during the Mexican-American War, which I should know Mm -hmm. more about being in Texas, but I don't. But, oh, the opening scene. So he's getting commended and everyone's eating steak. And mm-hmm. it is the grossest. But very like bloody steak. <laughs> very raw. So the sound in this movie is very unique. So the first thing, yeah, they're eating steak. And it's like a lot of smacking. Like, yeah. Plus with Boyd's breathing because he's getting sick. Because we don't know this at the time, but he has memories of swallowing his comrade's blood when his body was on top of him. Mm-hmm. And then the title card. So (laughs) there's a lot of weird sounds in this movie that shouldn't be here. Like when the title card comes up after Boyd has just puked up whatever is in his stomach, it's like a whoosh. It's really odd. And I was very thrown off by all of that because it's so funny. But it shouldn't be funny, but it's clearly meant to be funny. Well, I like that the film deals with a bunch of juxtapositions, and it's doing that right off the bat. So you've got the commendation ceremony juxtaposed with the reveal that he's actually a really bad coward and a terrible soldier. And then you've got these title cards where it's like, oh, it's a film called Ravenous, but it's got wacky, almost Saturday morning cartoon sound effects it's that go so along weird. with it. It's so weird. But I mean, like, I like it for that. It's just not at all what i expected coming into this movie no but it's good in terms of preparing you for what's to come Mm -hmm. so one of the common complaints about the film is that it's actually two films in one so people have a tendency to prefer the first half which people will classify as going up to the point where he jumps off the cliff and has to eat reich Mm-hmm. And then the second half begins when he comes back to the fort and then Calhoun shows up under the guise of Captain Ives. And then we've got that whole extended second act, which is, quote unquote, a more traditional horror film because it's just people getting murdered left, right and center. Yeah. So the first one's more psychological. People will say, oh, it's got more things to say. And then it feels like whiplash because all of a sudden it's just, oh, people getting murdered and it's conventional cannibalism stuff. But that does, A, the film a disservice, but it also, B, misunderstands that these mirroring and juxtapositions have been happening right from that very first scene. See, though, this doesn't feel like two different movies to me. Honestly, a lot of it feels like a natural progression, especially, as you said, that if you see that Boyd has become a Wendigo from the get-go, it's a very natural progression of point A to point B from the beginning into this movie. Well, unless you're a dunce like me and you didn't pick up on it the first time you watched. Well, no, but you were also, you know, a very young 20-year-old watching this in theaters. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so what do you think of the idea that Boyd and Calhoun are mirrors of each other? I mean, I get it. So two gay men, one of them has this repressed homophobia or um, internalized homophobia where it's like, I can't be like this. This is wrong. I need to get rid of it. And the other one is like, no, like you said, super queer, super proud, super, I'm gay, rainbow flag, yay, yay, pride, pray, da, la, la. So I get that. It works. 
And again, when you're watching the movie, you're like, it's cannibalism. Boyd's in the right. <laughs> like <laughs> Robert Carlyle is insane, which Carlyle gives a wonderfully manic performance. And have you ever seen the ABC series Once Upon a Time? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's not, not great. my favorite, but not, he's not my favorite. good in it. Well, but the whole time I was watching him in this movie, I was like, this feels like a primer for his Rumpelstiltskin because he plays Rumpelstiltskin in Once Upon a Time. He's very manic. He's very witty and funny and all over the place. And I was into it. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a great actor. So he can do the comedy bits. He can do the drama bits. I was scary. impressed with how scary he is. Yeah. To me, the most effective scene by far, like head and shoulders above everything else, that scene where it's revealed that it's a trap. Yes! It is a trap. So let's talk about that. Okay. Honestly, I didn't know that was coming. Okay. So the setup, he brings all these men to this cave where he's like, all of my comrades have died because Captain Ives? I think mm-hmm. he says Ives. Killed them and ate them all and I escaped. So please help me come kill these people. Uh, Kill Captain Ives. And of course, the trick is that he killed them all. Yeah. He starts acting real crazy, like super manic, hopping around like a little bunny rabbit, while Neil McDonough is in the cave and discovers the grossest eaten skeletons. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a meat rack where they're hanging from the ceiling by their feet. Like those skeletons have been plucked clean. And so, okay, this is something that only Patreon listeners are going to get because I talked about this in Last Us on the Left, but I don't pay attention to editing. But the editing in this scene, cutting back between the discovery of the skeletons to Robert Carlyle's performance to mm-hmm. um, Jeffrey Jones's character, Hart, and what's-his-face? Toffler? Toffler. Being like, what's going on was excellent. Yeah. You're right. Hands down the best part of the movie. And then it turns into a wacky chase scene immediately mm-hmm. thereafter because Boyd and Wright come out and they're trying to warn everybody but by that point everybody's dead except for Toffler who has escaped and run away into the mountain mm-hmm. and I think this is another one of those scenes where people say oh it was just very odd because all of a sudden this weird music cue kicks in it's so weird <laughs> and it doesn't seem like it's appropriate because it sounds almost comedic kind of jaunty like it was reminiscent of, oh shit, what's it called? Are you going to say <laughs> Deliverance's Dueling Banjos? Because that's what I was thinking of. Well, that's what it actually is based off of. Oh. So if you had have listened to your commentary, you would have heard that they were deliberately referencing Deliverance, which just gives extra oomph to this idea that that's Robert Carlyle chasing after the priestly boy to have his way with him. I think it's important to note, though, so the score for this movie, and I'm not great with band names or composer names, so it's two people. It's Michael Nyman and Damon Albarn. Michael Nyman, uh, mostly known for doing the score for The Piano. Great movie if you've never seen it. But Damon Albarn is the lead singer of a British rock band named Blur. Oh, really? Yes. I love Blur. Two very, I don't know what that means, but two very (laughs) different people with different musical backgrounds working on this film together. And you see that, though, in the score, because it goes back and forth between, like, typical horror movie music to Mm -hmm. this weird comedic banjo hillbilly music. Which, again, is that juxtaposition of almost like a clash of different kinds of things combining to make a very unusual, interesting combination. So it worked for you? I mean, it's one of those things where you're watching it and you're like, wait, what? 
cute. Like, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? But to me, particularly, that scene absolutely works. From going to the hypertension, oh my god, is anyone going to get out of this situation alive? To then wacky comedy, then back to, oh wow, Boyd is cornered on a giant cliff edge. Is he even going to get out of this? So, you know what I'm thinking of as we're talking about this juxtaposition of funny banjo music to really dark stuff, right? I do not. But I think you're going to tell me. Um, The Last House on the Left, the original. Oh, yes, yes, okay. So, listeners, again, in the Patreon episode, we talked briefly about Wes Craven's attempt at doing this sort of thing in his 1972 theatrical debut, Last House on the Left. And... In that film, I said that it didn't work for me at all. It doesn't work for me either. But I would say that this is being done in a far more self-aware fashion, but it's not hitting you over the head with it. Whereas in The Last House on the Left, I mean, it's reinforced with really stupid comedic cops that don't have a place in the film. Whereas in this film, like, there's no wacky character. It's just trying to like lighten the mood a little bit for a brief moment almost to give you that reprieve like we're not going to go tension 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 it's tension 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 (laughs) the only scene of this movie where i really did feel tension was that scene where they it's revealed that carlisle is the villain of the piece Mm -hmm. it's a great twist like you know something is up with him he's creepy at this point he's already licked toffler in the middle of the night yes which is also super creepy and super gay I mean, so gay. not that I'm trying to equate creepiness <laughs> with gayness, but yeah, like these men are like camping out and Toffler falls down a ravine or something and like he like busts open his side and in the night fucking Robert Carlyle is licking his wound. It is mm-hmm. creepy as fuck. Mm-hmm. So, so coming back to Ryan's piece, he makes mm-hmm. a specific mention about the language that Toffler uses in the scene where he gets awoken to Calhoun licking him. So he says, in the middle of the night, Calhoun begins licking at Toffler's wound. When the man wakes up, he begins screaming, he was licking me. He was licking me. It's unclear what is more alarming to Toffler, that it was a he licking Mm. A gentle, almost intimate act as much about taste as eroticism, or that as a whole, he was being licked by Calhoun. So Toffler's emphasis on each repetition of the phrase is consistently all of the above. So even things like lines of dialogue, this idea that Boyd gets kicked out of the army or he gets demoted despite the fact that he's been promoted so that he can go to Fort Spencer, which Brian suggests is kind of like don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. Which I thought was an interesting perspective. I mean, it's 1999. So you're like, you're in the Clinton administration during all this. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things where I love film criticism, because it's really easy for people to say it's a reach, it's a stretch, or you're you're reading too much into it. But the thing is, is that these films are a byproduct of the time and the culture that are producing them. And at this point in time, 1999, Where were queer rights? Where was Mm -hmm. the military position on don't ask, don't tell and that kind of stuff? Like these are all things that can definitely inform the narrative. It's just really interesting to me. No, it absolutely is. And I'm going to piggyback on your quote with one of mine. And I promise I'm not trying to like be like, your quote doesn't matter. So here's mine. Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're, you're merely presenting something else to further the conversation. 
I'm piggybacking, and I'm also going to um, segue, because Calhoun has a Manifest Destiny speech, which I don't care about, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's important for reasons. Okay. Anyway, so, <laughs> so uh, this is from, it's a blog called Jude in the Obscure. Jude apparently doesn't have a name, and he or she does not give his or her name during this, but... We have Ravenous. The second theme that the film's cannibalism helps to convey is homosexuality, specifically repressed homosexuality. This repression is obviously periotypical, because there's no gay pride in 1840s California, but it lends such an interesting dimension to the film. Nobody is ever described as homosexual, and no overt homosexual acts occur, yet the unresolved sexual tension is simmering away throughout. During the Manifest Destiny monologue, Calhoun attempts to persuade Boyd to just give in. There's plenty of talk about acquiescence, and truth be told, it all comes off as rather seductive. If you look at the scene in context, there are quite plainly layers to it. At this point in the film, these two men have had multiple conversations about the certain virility which comes with the consumption of human flesh, and Mm -hmm. Calhoun has licked Boyd's blood off of his fingers, and had what I can only describe as a literal orgasm. Oh yeah, he looks like he's enjoying that way too much. And that kind of comes across... So when he's licking Toffler, well, you don't actually see him lick Toffler. It's kind of like an after the fact thing, but he seems ashamed, but it's clearly an act. But yeah, when he's like full evil and he's, you know, licking the fingers of Boyd, it's yeah, it's just like, I love you. I love men. I love eating you. I love eating men. Mm -hmm. I'd love to taste you a little bit more in many different ways. I'd love to stick my tongue up your tight little butthole and just okay, taste it. Okay, okay. That's, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. <laughs> anyway. You don't need to be vulgar about it. Oh my no, goodness. no, no, no. But I'm not being vulgar. I'm being honest. He's into rim jobs. We are in 1847 here. You need to have some decency. You're my right. God. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. But anyway, that's, this whole, that's what this whole movie is a metaphor for. That's all we're trying to get to the point across and if you disagree, that's okay. But you're a little wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so what else? Is there other stuff about Ravenous? I'm interested to hear what your perspective was since this was your first time watch. I I do want to watch it again in the sense that I feel like whenever you see a movie for the first time and it's not what you expect it to be, I'm a firm believer that you need to watch it again. Because you have to watch it knowing what it is on its own terms to really appreciate and understand what it's trying to do. Granted, I still liked this movie, but because it wasn't what I was expecting it to be, the whole time I was watching it, I was in a very... It was a phase of discovery, I guess I would say. It wasn't predictable for me. Right. So I want to watch it again, knowing what it is, knowing what happens, to kind of appreciate what it's trying to do. Because I don't think on a first viewing, you know what this movie's trying to do or trying to say or trying to accomplish. Yeah, so I mentioned the first time I watched, I completely missed this idea that Boyd was already transforming before he even got Mm -hmm. to the fort. And then one thing that I only caught on this most recent watch was the distinction between how people look before and after they become Wendigo, aka gay. Yeah. And it occurred to me, there's a lot of emphasis that's made to reinforce how shitty Boyd looks when he's not consuming human beings. So Guy Pierce is a He's a very versatile actor in the way that he can look. Sometimes he's very muscled up and sometimes he's very gaunt. He's kind of like the Australian Christian Bale. Yeah. But in this film, he looks 
gaunt and gray and disheveled and like his beard is gross and rattly and then you contrast that with the way that Calhoun looks in that quote-unquote second part of the film when he comes back as Captain Ives he's gotten his hair cut but he also looks radiant and then all of a sudden Colonel Hart comes back and Jeffrey Jones is looking 10 years younger he's got a healthy glow like his hairline seems better and it just occurs to me that if we're talking about this as an embracing of your homosexuality, it's kind of like, you know what? When you just accept who you are, you also blossom. You start to look better. You start to dress better. You're feeling like your true authentic self. And it's just beautiful. Well, you can look at that in two ways, though. So you can view it as, oh, homosexuality makes you vain. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would argue, if anyone's been on Grinder ever in their life, is accurate. I don't know what a grinder is. C'est quoi un grinder? I know. I know. Did you use French? Yes, I'm also versatile. Oh. I'm a man of the world. Are you bilingual? Can you, like, speak French fluently? Uh, I could back in the day. I can't anymore. But that's stupid. Um, so It's a skill. It's a skill that goes away when you don't use it. Wait, so were you raised speaking French and English, or did you take classes? I went to French immersion school for 10 years. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, so so yes. Tell the children who may not know what grinder is. What is grinder? Um grinder say that in all seriousness, because we may have people who are listening who have never been on it or Oh right, because we might have straight non-queer listeners. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or underage listeners. That's also true. Grinder is an app where you can get on and you make a profile for yourself. Typically it'll probably say mask for mask. <laughs> Because that's wow. No, no, no. I'm not saying that for myself. I'm just saying because that seems to be a trend that people see on there. And I think it's stupid. If you're mask for mask, that's stupid. I don't care if we lose listeners over that. But you can basically pinpoint the nearest amount of people ready to either date or fuck based on their distance away from you. Yeah, more so the latter than the former. Although the app operates under the guise that it's for people who might be looking for long-term relationships or dating or hookups but it's mostly well, hookups from what i think I've and the the straight people at tinder which i guess gay people used to i mean i'm so out of the loop because when i met my husband there were no dating apps well i'm sorry there were but we didn't have iphones so we didn't use them we met the natural way and by na- sorry but not that meeting on grinder or something isn't natural we met the we met the regular fashion way old-fashioned way there you go perfect great so Which is I, what, at a bar, at a friend's party? No, 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 yeah, at a bar. We met at a dive bar doing karaoke. Ah, I know. Yeah, anyway, homosexuality, it could be seen as being vain because eating men makes you younger and prettier and more strong. Um, I had a point B that I got <laughs> lost on. <laughs> My apologies. I side turns. <laughs> I, I, actually, this. I actually did want to discuss, though, knowing Jeffrey Jones is criminal history how Mm. creepy is it watching if you're watching this movie through a queer lens how creepy is it watching this movie when he's the one that comes back from being a cannibal and he accepts it but then he says honestly uh, this is the one part of the film that didn't work for me when he decides to let boyd kill him Mm -hmm. because he's the second twist of the movie is that Hart is alive and helping calhoun and it seems like it's one scene later when he's like I can't live like this anymore. After, what, two days? Kill me! Boyd manages to break him down by appealing to his morality, and I think also his Christianity, if I'm not incorrect. Probably so. Yeah. 
I, I think you're right. But again, watching it through the knowledge that this actor likes child porn, then watching it through that lens, it kind of makes it even more disturbing. Well, it's odd, too, because he's not the pious character in this film, right? So if you wanted to have someone who could be appealed to, I think it would have made more sense to have Toffler be the one who comes back. I don't fully agree with that, because I think that Hart does a pretty good job of like being the welcomer in the beginning of the film. He's the reason why they go to the cave in the first place, because of his humanity and his care for the people that might be dead. Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously, Jeffrey Jones is a piece of shit. But <laughs> Hart is a pretty decent guy until he is converted to cannibalism. Yeah. And then he becomes a straight up. And then, yeah, then he gets his throat slit. Oh, I did like his throat slitting, though, because it splashes on the window as Calhoun is walking towards the cabin. Mm-hmm. And one cool. of the many, many mirroring double scenes that you have between Boyd and Calhoun. Yeah. Before we get to the bear trap, though, which, oh, my God. But <laughs> was the film as gory as you thought it was going to be? Uh, that's a good question. I honestly can't remember what my expectations were going in. I think the thing that drew my attention the most this time was the fact that nearly all of the wounds are stomach wounds. Mm-hmm. Like nearly everybody gets stabbed or shot basically in the torso and that was very odd to me but i guess it makes sense because you are talking about cannibalism and the stomach is the site of the eating well i guess so but also bear in mind this film is not as gory as i thought it was going to be but i was gonna say it's 1999 but it was released before columbine so you don't have the excuse of oh studio interference so this movie came out exactly a month before columbine happened because columbine was april 20th of 1999 but yeah, I was surprised by last cannibal movies I've seen are this and The Green Inferno, uh, the Eli Roth movie. Yeah, which is a hard comparison. Well, yeah, I mean, totally different cannibalism movies, but they're both about cannibalism. Yes. Neither one are as gory as I thought they were going to be. Oh, really? Yeah. I, Green... I feel like Green Inferno is trying to do everything in its power to shock and disgust you because it's Eli Roth jerking off in the corner and being like, oh, you're squeamish. Oh, no, I made no, no, you no. shriek. You cut out the Jonah death scene, which is an overweight guy that gets dismembered and like his tongue ripped out and his eyeballs pulled out and his head pulled off, like all that stuff. You cut mm-hmm. out that scene. That movie is not that gory. Anyway, not super important. But and this isn't a knock against the film. I just I was surprised for being a movie about cannibalism that it wasn't like even the the stomach stuff though isn't that gory. David Arquette's no. death is off screen. Yeah, there's a lot of quick deaths and off screen deaths. There are, which is fine, mind you. I mean, there is gore in the movie. It earns the R rating. Fine, I would argue mostly for subject matter as opposed to what's actually transpiring on screen. Oh yeah, yeah. And you can you can kind of tell, I think, when you look at some of the reviews and the way that people reacted to this film, people found it distasteful. It's not gross and gory. It's offensive to delicate sensibilities. But I think that's that tone. I think it's people thinking the movie was making light of cannibalism because of the tone. Yeah, quite possibly. Because I don't think the movie is distasteful. I think the movie is, again, making a statement about whatever you want to plug into the role of cannibalism, whether it's homosexuality or, I don't know, anything else i'm saying homosexuality right now because that's what we're talking about but you can probably plug in something else there and mm-hmm. it'd be fine yeah okay so talk to me about the bear trap i'm just okay <laughs> like just if get... you haven't bought into anything that we've said you know as we cross 
over the one hour mark, just watch the end of the film. Watch the two men get caught in a bear trap and die together. And tell me that there isn't any homoeroticism in this. If you would have told me <laughs> that this movie would end with two men trapped in a giant bear trap, I i mean, it's a bizarre climax for a film, but mm-hmm. it fits the tone perfectly. Basically, they're in this barn. Everyone is dead except for Martha, because God bless Martha. <laughs> she's she, she's, she's just there. She's the fuck out of there. She's like... <laughs> A bunch of gay men are dying. I'm getting out of here. But yeah, so he, Boyd tricks Calhoun into this bear trap and they both get crushed by it. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue is, I didn't write it down, but it's like Calhoun's like, um, you say you won't be a cannibal, but uh, will you eat me if I die? Because if you die, I'm going to eat you first or something like that. Yeah. And it's Robert Carlyle delivering this dialogue with the most sensual, come on kind of voice. Like, so uh, what you going to do? Because if you die first, you know I'm going to take a bite out of that. <laughs> and you replace that with fuck. Like, I will fuck you in the ass. <laughs> I will put your cock in my mouth. That That's exactly what what he's saying there. I mean, you know. I don't think this needs to be spelled out, but when you're watching it, listeners, I apologize for these graphic, unnecessary... Our podcast uh, is marked explicit. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if there's people under the age of 18 listening to this, that's their parents' problem. Our listeners who are listening to this at 5 a.m. on their way to work. Oh, my God. So, anyway, <laughs> they are pressed into an embrace and are basically daring each other to fuck them. Yeah. After they die. Who's going to make the first move? (laughs) Yes. And then, of course, Robert Carlyle dies. But, twist, Boyd opts to not give in to temptation. Mm -hmm. He's the good boy to the end. Yes. And he dies. He'd rather die than come out. He would rather die than be gay. And that is an unfortunate reality that we live in. That anyone that is brought up semi-religious or super religious or honestly whatever, like even growing up in a society that deems being queer as being wrong or evil or whatever... So many people would rather die than live that life. Mm-hmm. And that's what Boyd does. And it's really upsetting. Like, for a movie that is kind of flippant or like, no, no that's not the right word, uh, happy-go-lucky, because it is, <laughs> it was kind of a downer ending to go off of. Yeah, it really is. I mean, if you look at this as a straightforward cannibal film where cannibal equals bad, then it's Boyd making this pious, righteous decision like, no, I'm not going to be one of those but if you do look at it as a queer sub slash full text, yeah, it's someone saying, you know what, I've been fighting this whole time and I've decided that death is still a better option. And that's not the message that I would no. encourage anyone to ever consider. And I don't think that's what the movie's trying to say because based on what I've read about Antonio Bird, she seems like a peach. Uh, oh, I'm yeah. sorry, s- seemed like a peach because she's dead. Wow. Well, <laughs> she is. But... Yeah, if you read that with the gay undertones, it's a bit of a downer ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why can't these men just have their outpost on the edge of the woods and live there and be merry and, like, look fabulous? It'd be so lovely. I don't know. Overall, though, given all the troubles this movie had, I think this movie came out rather well, all things considered. Mm-hmm. It's a quirky little oddball film. 
it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, Mm-mm. but I think it's earned its cult status because it is really interesting. It's got great performances. The look of the film in terms of the detail, the set dressing, the action sequences are really well done. It's a good film. I think it's just that that weird tone shift that throws people off. The movie looks like a film from the 70s for a lot of the time. Not really. I, I mean, I, maybe, maybe that's just me, but like, even though it's a 1999 movie, it felt like a 70s Western. That's the look that I got from this movie. Even just the camera quality, I, I don't even know, but it didn't feel of its time to me. Particularly like 1999, it was also not a good time for Westerns. So this was doubly odd. <laughs> no time is a good time for Westerns post like fucking 83. <laughs> like... <laughs> If even then. I thought you were going to say like the 50s and 60s. That's, That's true. I just feel like there was a Western 83 that may, might have been popular. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Well, no. Right. So, no, because we, we had True Grit, the, the remake, but that was more of a Coen Brothers draw than it was a Western draw. No one wants to go fucking see a Western, but if you said the Coen Brothers did it, then they're going to be like, oh, yeah, let's go see it. Yes, they would say it just like that. Mm-hmm, let's, go yeah. see <laughs> let's go see it. And all the old people were like, oh, we're going to go see Hey, guys, want to go see Ravenous? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine people in the 90s? Well, actually, no, I can't because no one went to go see this movie. <laughs> Apparently, no. it was just you giving a million dollars. It was dollars just me movie. in that empty fucking theater. <laughs> <laughs> I like seeing movies by myself. No, I do, too. No, it's great. I got into that when I worked in a movie theater in high school. I would get off a shift and just go see a movie by myself. It's a very, like, relaxing feeling to go see a movie by yourself. And sometimes I'll still do it today. Especially if I feel like a film is going to be too weird or it's just not going to work for people. I'm like, I don't want to subject other people to this. And I also don't want to have to listen to them bitch about it later. So I'll just go see it by myself. I feel like by people, you mean your husband. (laughs) Uh sometimes he he'll come and see certain films with me but there's a lot of films he'll just flat out be like no i'm not interested in that you can go and see it with other people Bye. oh my god uh, uh. he's very good at, at drawing lines in the sand with what he's willing to watch i'm gonna fly to canada and i'm going to sit him down and i'm gonna be like brian look you seem great but which is a great way to start a conversation yeah <laughs> <laughs> Great lead in. I really like where this is going. Yeah, continue. Just fucking watch horror movies with your husband. <laughs> God damn watch it. Some horror movies with me. I will say, listeners, this has been a rough week for my poor husband. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because we watched two last houses on the left. So if you want to listen to our thoughts on that, you should listen to the Patreon episode. And then I also was reviewing this Danish film called Holiday. And it has a super graphic rape scene. So at one point earlier this week, Brian just turned to me and was like, are you done with the rape films? Because I'm kind of done with it. (laughs) I've heard Holiday's really good, though. I've heard like two people have said that it's amazing. It's really beautiful. And it's very stilted. Like emotionally, it's quite cold. The lead actress is great. But I'm not going to lie. That rape scene was it was fucking tough. It was I mean, it wasn't like Last House on the Left from 2009 bad, but it was, let's just say that you get to see everything. Like, those actors did not simulate anything. Wait, is it like actual, like, sex footage? Yes. Oh, fuck. And it was really uncomfortable. All right. Well, on my list, then, I guess. If you're looking for that D, 
and you can't afford a good porn <laughs> account. And, and you're into rape culture, I guess. Yeah, and you're like... into rape culture. <laughs> Just gonna cut that all out. Yes, <laughs> that's gonna make it sound really bad. Um, so, Trace, do you want to play a little ravenous game? I do, and I'm very intrigued by this. <laughs> okay, so in the spirit of the film's cannibal themes, I would like you to identify a dish that you could serve based off of human beings. um okay so i don't know if we've talked about this but i actually like to scour the awful section of the grocery store wait how are you defining awful o-f-f-a-l it's like the oh okay (laughs) (laughs) i know there's an awful section of a grocery store i was getting there yeah the awful not awful so awful is the organs that nobody wants <laughs> so when i'm going down the meat section there's like packages of chicken hearts there's packages of gizzards there's packages of liver and stuff like that and they're all really cheap because no one wants them except for tongue tongue is always really expensive like you can buy a cow tongue for like 25 dollars. it's insane it's a bit of a delicacy right not really i mean like it's a heavy thing to eat. I've only made tongue once. Uh, my husband, like, refused to eat it, which weird because it's a traditional Mexican dish. Like, lengua is put in tacos a lot, and my husband's Mexican. Mm. But he doesn't like it. Oh, and for a tongue, you have to boil it for, like, three hours yes. and then peel off that outer layer of skin before you eat it. Okay. We needed a listener warning on that because I nearly vomited. <laughs> <laughs> Tongue's really good, by the way. So I was thinking about human recipes because, yes, you did tell me about this question in advance. Uh, sorry, listeners. I-, I knew about it. And I can't give him too many hard things without prep. He well, no, I mean, to... <laughs> when you think about, talking about cannibalism and like food recipes, I always go to Hannibal or Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. So I was really thinking sweetbreads. So there's brain, you know, which I mean, I've I've never had a brain before. I've always wanted to try it. Um, But (laughs) sweetbreads I have had before, and I do like those. Now, for people who don't know, sweetbreads are organ meat from the thymus gland and the pancreas. A lot of times you get them from veal or lamb, but you can get them from just regular beef and pork. But veal and lamb are going to be where you find them in your grocery store. And I would just do that. Uh, You've got to basically, like, soak them in water or milk sometimes people do it in milk when i make liver i soak it in milk for like an hour to kind of get that funky smell out and so you do it with sweet breads and then you blanch them for a bit which is you throw them in boiling water and then dunk them in ice water for a bit and then you can kind of do whatever you want with them the common way to do sweet breads is by frying them but i think i would you know just season them with something and i don't know roast them in the oven for a bit okay Oh, but with humans, of course, if we're talking cannibal meat. Yes, obviously. (laughs) What about you? Oh, yeah. No, I'm not answering this question because I am the worst cook ever. What the fuck? (laughs) Now people people are going to be going, oh, Trace is going to eat human meat. Well, I mean, if the shoe fits. Okay. If the sweet bread fit. (laughs) Honestly, honestly, if I was at a restaurant and they said, hey, here's some human meat, would I try it? Um... Maybe? Maybe. I'm going to say maybe. I feel like the way to go is to feed it to people and then tell them after the fact, by the way, no, you just ate. I'd rather know. I mean, like, okay, so ugh, this is going to sound terrible. So I'm a huge dog activist. I love dogs. Austin's a very big dog city. But if I were in a foreign country and there was a moose-bouche of, like, dog something, I'd probably try it. You're a sick bitch. And it's terrible. I mean, I, I get that. But I mean, I, I always want to find the weirdest thing on the menu. I remember when I found chicken bones or chicken's feet when I was in college at a Chinese restaurant. Ugh. 
The weirdest thing to eat, by the way, but really good. I'm not super adventurous when it comes to that kind of stuff, so I tried different kinds of meat, but not unusual body parts. So I've had like ostrich burgers, and I've had kangaroo, and oh, I've never had kangaroo. Is that available? Oh, because you've been Australia. I was like, where'd you get kangaroo Mm -hmm. in Canada? (laughs) Uh, I think you could probably get it, but it would likely be in a specialty butcher. But it's a very lean meat, so you can overcook it. So a lot of people try it, and they don't have a good experience because if it's overcooked, it's really unpleasant to eat. Uh, see, and like the reason that I go to the awful section of the grocery store is because it's cheaper. So like you can get like two pounds of hearts for like three dollars and liver is like typically a dollar fifty to two dollars a pound. It is insane. I love that you're confessing to eating weird meats because you're a cheapskate. Well, I mean, they're good too. <laughs> oh, the chicken hearts. Oh, no, no. The chicken hearts I made with like a mushroom sauce and rice. And then with the gizzards, I actually, okay, this is going to sound weird, but I found this really good gizzard recipe where you basically boil them in craft zesty Italian dressing mixed with like other spices. Oh, weird. It's really good. Look, all I'm saying is that if people want to hear your cannibal recipes, they can come and fund us on Patreon. We'll open up a new tier <laughs> and you can have a cookbook ready for Christmas. I would actually totally do that. That's it. it's either that or it's a Jello recipe book. One of no, the no, no, no. <laughs> I re- I, honestly, I really wish that we could like meet in person so I could teach you how to cook every now and then because my husband doesn't like to cook either. So I need to sit both of you down and we'll just all learn to cook. <sighs> That'll be the dream. We'll see if we can make it happen one day. I'll team up with Brian. We'll teach y'all to cook and then you can and we, you and I will get, teach Brian to like horror movies. There we go. Okay. I like it. Fantastic. Mm. Done. So, uh, yeah. That's ravenous. Mm-hmm. So, so <laughs> do that do that wrap up nonsense that we always have to do. Yeah. So if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at at Traced Thurman. And I am at B Stole My Remote. And as usual, if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag horrorqueers in your tweet so we can find you. You can also email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. But as Joe has mentioned, if you want more horror queers, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash horrorqueers where you can listen to episodes, as we've mentioned, on Last House on the Left. And by the time this episode drops, we won't have an episode on us out yet, but it will be out very soon. Mm-hmm. Yes, very excited for that. Well, by the time this drops, I would have already seen it, but you might not have. So ha 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 ha. We'd also like to thank Bloody Disgusting for sponsoring us and allowing us to promote our podcast. So keep reading Bloody Disgusting. And of course, you can catch up on our articles there each month. And finally, please, for the love of God, go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review or rate us. You can just press the fucking five star button. And (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you can't find the one that's marked fucking five star, just click the five star regular one. There is a one star and a two star and a three star and a four star, but those aren't important. They don't want your finger. Five star button wants your finger inside of it right now. Anyway, stick it in that bear trap, accept it and (laughs) move on. Joe, do you know what we're talking about next week? I do, because you fucking don't, do you? No, I don't! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I opened up the doc as you were talking, so... Okay. Yes, so next week we are actually going to travel away from 1999 and 2000, and we're going to go all the way back to the early 70s, and we're going to look at Daughters of Darkness. I've never seen this movie. Lesbian Vampires. I haven't seen it either, so I think this is going to be one of the first films where neither one of us have seen it. All right. I mean, exciting. I feel like I've heard pretty good things about it. Mm -hmm. Expect art cinema to the max. 
We'll be yes. spending the hour talking about costumes, which is also why we're going to have a very special guest star who I'm yes. not revealing. We are going to have a special guest. So you should tune in just to see who that is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, watch Stars of Darkness. I bought the Blu-ray. It's sitting in my living room right now. But I'm sure it's also on Amazon Prime or Shutter or Netflix. Actually, I think so. Probably not Netflix, but it's available. So go find Daughters of Darkness. It's a very famous, I want to say 1971, lesbian vampire movie. <laughs> anyway, it's early 70s. It's European. It's got beautiful people wearing fantastic clothes and uh, lesbians. Lots because lesbians. it's a vampire film. <laughs> Vagina. <laughs> All right. Well. I think we can uh, safely cross out Ravenous. Yes, and cross out Horror Queries. Horror Queries.